4 o'clock on Tuesday means home time with Jen Bartlett. And don't forget, you can not only listen at this time, but also the program streams for a week. And then there's the podcast. Look it up on 3cr.org.au to find out how. But today, Kathy Kelly, looking back on her time and her friends in Afghanistan, continuing the exposure of the complicity with human rights abuses of the Australian Federal Police with Jason McLeod. Joe Montero talking about Alex Sam, Venezuelan diplomat facing extradition to the US. And we know what that means. Palestinian aid worker in jail for five years on trumped-up charges. Nura Mansour knows the truth of that story. And what lies ahead for Brazil with Bolsonaro's future looking very dicey as the election draws nearer. I'll be speaking with Fred Fuentes. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had a week. A week, Jan, listener, when the Greens exposed their total divorce from reality by promising a huge, great big new tax, great big new tax, as former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses would have warned on massive profits and mining windfalls if they held the balance of power and supported a Socialist Party government. A flirtation with insanity thankfully nipped in the bud by Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo Anthony Albing Uzi, who dismissed the brain fade as madness and said no, his policy was not to tax the filthiest rich or the filthy rich, but to slash the taxes they don't pay now. On that, Anthony boasted, the Socialist Party is in lockstep with the government. Clearly, the Greens expose they have no idea of how the greatest little economic order of them all works, how the delicate flower that is the economy works, but we don't need to say that. It was said for us in a brilliant rebuttal of the madness by no less an expert than our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the Troublewazi Industry Profits Group, who within a few hours published a brilliantly logical argument as a feature piece in, you guessed it, the Troublewazi Capitalist Review. A fundamentally flawed and ill-informed policy that seeks only to soak the rich. Oh dear, how flawed and ill-informed can you get? There is, of course, in us of course, a populist appeal in calling for more taxes on billionaires and super profits. That's an old song that has been played many times. But if that is the target, surely it would be honest to first acknowledge the starting point. Well, ignoring the split infinitive, there's no doubt that is the target, and far be it for us to disagree with Innes on anything, but in this case, Innes, I think that is also their starting point. But, but his balanced thinking did say the Greens deserve some credit for drawing attention to our Byzantine and outdated public finances and tax system. Innes then turning the argument, surprise, surprise, into the need for further reducing taxes on billionaires and super profits, making the Greens' fallacious argument even more fallacious. Tax them less, not more. This would be an enormous benefit to all of us. Treacle down, uh, no, trickle down and all that. And taxing billionaires and super profits even less would have the full support of the Socialist Party. 
Well, Innes didn't say that, but we could be sure Anthony would. But Anthony also showed he can disagree on important issues, like when his predecessor, Little Billy Shorten Ambition, reckoned Big Supremo Scuttleman Morlash son, a.k.a. Scummo, practised a double standard in flying home to Sydney for Father's Day when so many families were in lockdown and Anthony got stuck in too. Little Billy, and said he totally supported Scuttlebim. My, can't we look forward to some gripping debates when the election finally comes around. Uh, thank you, Big Supremo. Mr. Albing Uzi, it's your turn. You have ten minutes. I don't need that long. I, I agree with everything he said. Although Anthony must have lost control of his health spokesperson, Mark Notter-Battler, who came up with a Freedom of Information document he claimed showed Scummo and Health for Profit Minister Greg Haunt the Sick were offered vaccines but did nothing about it. The big pharma company saying it could provide millions of vaccine doses by the end of 2020. And that's where Anthony's out-of-control man came unstuck, as Greg explained, when they told Trouble Aussie they could provide millions, they didn't mean they could provide millions. They meant for the whole world, not Trouble Aussie. Greg and Scuttle them able to decipher that interpretation from the obviously coded, we could provide millions of vaccine doses by the end of 2020. Oh, sure, Greg, of course, we should have all known that. Thus he put the socialists right back in their place. Well, that Mark not a battler is a loose cannon. He was only transferred to the health shadow bit because as climate change spokesperson, he ridiculously and dangerously thought his job was to do something about climate change, if there is such a thing. Anthony can't risk spokespeople who will upset the government. Mentioned last week that our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Marie's pain in there, and minister for being offensive and train-killing Constable Peter Duffer are off to the US of the UN of the US of the world to pay homage at the court of big supremo Joe Biden with capital, who will tell us an evil Chinese company holding the lease over the port of Darwin is a security risk to the whole region. Not that Pete needs convincing. He agrees and wants to tear up the lease because he also wants more US of Marines. Send in the Marines stationed in Darwin because they're not a security risk. And just before departing on the pilgrimage, Pete addressed the US of Chamber of Commerce in Troubadour, Aussie. The mind boggles at the impression that would have given them. But Pete urged the US OB to share intellectual property for missiles so we can keep evil China at arm's length. By my calculation, evil China is quite a few arm's lengths from True Blue Aussie, but Pete wants arms to keep the arms at arm's length. Intellectual property, Pete. Like you know, uh, uh, like you know, yes. Uh, by the way, Pete, have you considered the legal implications and costs of tearing up the port lease? Uh, uh, like, uh, uh? Uh, we've obviously thought that one through. Still, Maurice and Pete could offer any help in undermining an elected government where the US of knows the people got democracy wrong, as we assisted the US of to overthrow the Chilean democracy. No doubt one of Pete's iconic heroes would be 
well, as we go back to the future after 20 years invading Afghanistan, correction, bringing the great benefits of Western civilization to Afghanistan, we might think the little warmongering, bald-headed bloke who was big supremo back in those dark ages might at least have the decency to retreat into lockdown and save us the wisdom of his ignorance, but no. He popped up again this week after a UN of the US of the UN of the world climate official Selwyn Hart said industrialised nations, including True Blue Aussie, must stop using coal by 2030, arousing the little bald-headed bloke's angry defence on behalf of all of us. It never ceases to amaze me that people want to destroy one of the most valuable export industries that this country has. It really does which also has the benefits of helping lift the living standards of still quite undeveloped countries. It really does. Well, yes, and some of them need to be lifted, but sadly can't be lifted as they sink into the briny. And he repeated that renewables can only survive with massive government subsidies they don't deserve. Where has he been since the country, including his own seat, threw him out? Still good to see his party and its coalition partner, the Hayseed and Sheepshit Lot, aided by the giant mind of Barnacle, still wallowing back in the Dark Ages with him. Those parties certainly seem to be a magnet for great thinkers, bringing us to this week's definition of desperation and back to the future. The fact that the state-caring business class party reverted to the bloke who got thrashed in the last election, that lobster with a mobster bloke, indicates their depth of talent as Matthew, he's the lobster with bloke, looked at the camera and told us very sincerely, I want all Victorians to know I'm on your side which is the most depressing news I've heard for a long time, unless Matthew, of course, has seen the light and is intent on destroying capitalism, the greatest little economic order. And I've got this feeling that he hasn't and isn't. He did say he wants to put a dedicated mental health expert in every school. Wonder how many mental health experts are not dedicated. Anyway, I'm sure after the next election, we'd be demanding a mental health expert in every household that voted for him. The Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs is obviously our national expert on human rights, obviously. Remember the aforementioned tiny a bit more for the bosses appointed Tim Wilgetham's son from the Institute to the Human Rights Commission before Tim went into Parliament. Tim qualifying by being a harsh critic of the Commission, and now Attorney General Michaelia Kosh, the workers, has appointed another Institute graduate, Lorraine on Progress Finlay, as Human Rights Commissioner. Her other human rights credentials, including as a Caring Business Class Party candidate, as Caring Business Class Party Women's Council President, and especially her expressed opposition to consent proposals for sexual assault and rape cases. And yet... Hard as it is to believe, the Law Council and the True Blue Aussie of the Year, Grace Tame, have criticised the appointment and reckon such appointment should be through an open and participatory process. Good grief, how dangerous. What might that lead to? And as Macadia pointed out, Lorraine on Progress is eminently qualified. Is she what? And it confirms Scamo's genuine concern for women. Finally, and a serious finally this week on 9-11, as our American friends would say, 11th of the 9th, as we would say, 
one of the few Americanisms taking over our language that we haven't yet adopted fulsomely. And as we are saturated with 20th anniversary coverage, let us remind ourselves of the events on that day 28 years earlier, 1973, when a CIA-orchestrated coup supported, as we've learned this week, by our very own Troubadoisi spies dedicated to democracy and decency, coup murdered Salvador Allende, the elected leader of Chile, installing the butcher General Augusto Pinch of Shit, leading to thousands of murders, tortures, disappearances and displacement, all supported by the US of and its lackey, True Blue Aussie. Indeed, our current 3CR chairperson was a young Chilean refugee in that dreadful period. Wonder if the Chilean dictatorship returned the favour by supporting the CIA's role in bringing down the True Blue Aussie government when we got democracy so wrong. Good afternoon. That was Mr Kevin Healy, and he's at it again tomorrow morning at nine with Sea Limits. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Ban School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash bandschool. That's icanw.org.au forward slash bandschool. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. Over the past 20 years, we've watched the horror inflicted on the people of Afghanistan by the US government's waging yet another war in a far-off country. But there have been some people, especially in that same United States, who have dedicated a great deal of their spare resources, much time and effort, to assist even a small number of Afghans, forced to live in the capital Kabul since the beginning of the war. And that effort continues to today, weeks after the capital city was overrun by the Taliban, thus securing their control over the country. One group of volunteers is one I've been in contact with over most of those 20 years, men and women dedicated to peace and anti-war. Voices for Creative Nonviolence has now disbanded, but the former members continue to support the people of Afghanistan. And today I'm speaking once again to one of those who established voices, Kathy Kelly, who has just written a paper titled 20 Years After 9-11, Reparations for Afghanistan and an End to War. When I spoke with Kathy at the weekend, I began with the beginning of that war, September the 11th, 2001. Kathy was actually there on that day in New York and I asked her to explain why. 
Well, it was a bit of an extraordinary thing. Um, a, a number of us had been going back and forth to Iraq many times because we were breaking the economic sanctions by bringing medicines and medical relief supplies there. And we were so desperate to get word to the U.S. officials at the U.S. mission to the U.N. about what we'd seen and heard in these multiple visits. We thought, well, perhaps a lengthy fast would kind of bring their attention to these issues. Well, we had done that for um, about three summers in a row. And so we had declared a 40-day fast this time. Usually we fasted for 30 days. And we were on about day 30 of this fast. Then that was the day uh, that some September 11th occurred in uh, 2001. And so we were in Manhattan. We went back to the parish that had given us hospitality. And we, we, we stayed there and we decided that we would continue our fast, but that we would fast in silence. We were kind of stunned by all that had happened. But that, then we got a, a call from the people at the U.S. Mission to the U.N. One of the women who was an official there called us and said, we can't let you go home without talking with you. So in spite of the fact that there was uh, enormous security around their offices after the Twin Towers had been attacked, uh, we were given uh, permission to go inside and talk with them. I actually now think, in retrospect, that they wanted to talk with us because they were under orders from the U.S. government to get all possible information about any uh, links between people in the United States and people in Iraq. But at any rate, they didn't seem terribly interested in what we had seen and heard at the bedsides of dying children. You were very fearful that day, I would imagine, what was going to come. I have to say I was overly optimistic, I guess. I felt sure that the people in the United States would be so stunned by what had happened that they would start to wonder why would anyone attack us like this? And that they would really start to wonder what grievances people in other countries might have against the United States. And that they would start to recognize, you know, this is what it feels like when people are attacked by another country and realize that, you know, well, we've done this to other countries. Those questions and those sentiments were I wouldn't say they were prevalent, but they were being expressed in the immediate aftermath of the attacks. But the, the United States government very quickly, with full force, used the impact of the attack on the Twin Towers and in Pennsylvania and at the um, Pentagon to stoke people's fears and to justify just vicious attacks against other countries. What were you able to do in those intervening years before you went into Afghanistan to support the people? Because you virtually couldn't get there, could you? I have to say that I was so focused on Iraq in those years leading up to the 2003 shock and awe war that I paid very little attention to people in Afghanistan and their plight and what the U.S. war in Afghanistan looked like. Eventually, it was impossible to turn away. 
And so by 2010, we were hearing from young people in Afghanistan who were saying, look, we don't want this war. We don't want any war. We're in solidarity with you, but could you please answer our emails? And so once we started to get to know this particular group of young people, then a number of us began to go and visit them and went back and forth from 2010 till about 2019, many times. I think I probably made about 27 trips back and forth to Afghanistan. And what we were trying to do was really learn from the young people and hope that somehow we could galvanize enough response within the United States to stop the terrible U.S war making that was continuing in a very forgotten war. Most people, you know, if you said something about war in Afghanistan, people would say, oh, is that still going on? And who were those young people in those early years? Well, they didn't really have an identity particularly. They were young people who lived in a rural province. It's called Bamyan. And in that province, most of the people were part of an ethnic grouping called Hazaras. They were Shia, and uh, they were discriminated against. Uh, People said, oh, well, your people look like Genghis Khan. They had more Asiatic features than many other uh, Afghan people. So these youngsters wanted to uh, do something their own families disapproved of greatly, and that was to start talking with and making overtures toward people from other ethnic backgrounds. They wanted to get to know Tajik people and Pashto people and Uzbek. They started to hold meetings and tried to have some joint events. They tried to create a peace garden in uh, the city of Bamiyan. And and in fact, they did that. It's there to this day. They, They got a bit of a reputation. They had started out as university students, but then the university students said, no, 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 this is never going to work. We we can never really trust one another. So the younger ones said, well, we're going to keep trying. Eventually they moved to Kabul and that was at about the time when we started to realize that uh, it was uh, really more cost efficient if we paid the rent for them to stay in a place in Kabul and then we stayed there when our delegations went over there rather than pay the very, very expensive prices to stay at guest houses in Kabul. So that's how things started. They welcomed us as their guests, and we began to help them with some of their projects over time. Were they forced to go to Kabul? In a way, I would say uh, some of them were. The religious figures in the area were extremely conservative and very, very, very suspicious of any kinds of practices that weren't things that they themselves engendered. And and these youngsters were experimenting with different kinds of farming methods. They were having meetings between uh, young people from different ethnic backgrounds. And they were beginning to, to realize that there was a world beyond Bamiyan that you know they hadn't had much access to. And uh, so the authorities got very angry with them and uh, they began to feel that they weren't safe. And that was without even mentioning the idea that eventually uh, young women could be involved in such activities as well. Afghanistan is the most conservative Muslim country in the world. And one of the things that happened with the U.S. invasion is that 
with more and more emphasis on centralized control of Afghanistan, this sort of altered the ways in which villages had for many, many, many years, for centuries, tended to function. And that was to have an imam from the religious perspective uh, joined with the um, person who was kind of almost like the village mayor and then the person who kind of took care of logistics for the village. Well, as the logistical concerns and the mayoral concerns were sort of usurped by more and more centralized governance coming from Kabul, that left a bit of a vacuum, and the imams got a much more control within the villages. And sometimes these were people who were pretty undereducated, really, and had some very medieval perspectives. And, and as they gained more control, it became more difficult for young people to begin to kind of uh, join in to perspectives in the modern world. Well, in those circumstances... Who or what were the influences on these young people to encourage them to break out? Well, there was a uh, an MD from Singapore who uh, had a had one uh, influence, and then some of the UN and NGO workers from various groupings, I think, exercised some influence. And then uh, they, you know, there, there, the university, perhaps to some extent, still was a, an influential. Agent. But I have to say that people getting cell phones made a great difference. You know, I, one time I remember that my young friends were kind of complaining, like, things are never going to change. And I said, what do you mean? Uh, three years ago, would you have had one of those cell phones? Would you have even imagined a cell phone? The fact that they could get in touch with people through cell phones. I mean, even like democracy now... Uh, uh, a very radical left-wing uh, radio station that airs the War and Peace Report in the United States called them on their cell phone and asked them, what do you think about Guantanamo? Because they had found out about Guantanamo. They had decided to do a fast themselves in solidarity with closing Guantanamo. So they were you know, beginning to recognize that they could be conversant with people far beyond their mountain village, and I think that had a big effect on them. Does that mean that they had to cut contacts with their families? Some of the families were very anxious. And on the other hand, you know, there were families who said, look, you know, we for all these centuries have been illiterate peasants and, and life is hard. But you have a chance now to become educated and um, make a, a positive difference in our lives. So we'll take the risk of letting you go to Kabul and start to study in school. And you know they were certainly the first ones in their village, uh, some of these youngsters, to complete a university education. And some of the young women are the first ones to have completed high school and go on to college educations. Talk about some of those young people, because by the time you left for the last time in 2018, they were grown up by then, weren't they? Well, that's right. They're not youngsters in the sense that they were when I first knew them, and they were 12 and 13 and 14 years old. And uh, in their growing up years, they began to, uh, some of them, take what they had already learned about living together with people from different backgrounds, about living simply, about doing volunteer work, about sharing resources. That moved with them. So some of them moved back to their province of Bamiyan. Some moved up to other provinces in order to study 
well, about five or six actually moved out beyond Afghanistan itself. So they have turned out to be such wonderful young people. It has really been a big blessing in the, the lives of those of us who got to know them when they were younger. But now some of them are starting their own families and have children. In fact, one has moved to Australia with his wife and two children and now lives in Sydney, Australia. And also they help the younger kids coming along, the street kids. Oh, that's most certainly true. And, you know, that was a project that took some years to kind of get on its feet and it sort of sputtered now and then uh, because it was hard to figure out how to have a, a welcome to these young street kids and keep it stable enough that something could continue. But uh, once they found their equilibrium, that project became a, a, a really an, an, a, an exemplary project because what they figured out is that the families of kids living in refugee camps or kids who as child laborers were the only ones in their families earning an income, people who were really having a rough time, particularly during the winters, if the children could return from going to this uh, weekend tutoring time with a food ration for the family, then the family would definitely support the youngster behaving and coming to the school and learning how to read and write and getting ready to perhaps go to the government school and break out of this cycle of illiteracy and poverty. It seemed like at the same time, some of the young people were discovering themselves to be very capable teachers. And so it was really a wonderful thing. You see these young kids just with shining eyes looking up to uh, the young people that were maybe 16, 17, 18 years old who were their teachers, and they admired those people, their teachers, and they wanted to learn. And so then the young teachers realized that they really didn't quite have a textbook to use for teaching Dari, their language, or math, or hygiene, other things that they really wanted to teach to these young kids that was geared specifically for them. And so they made their own textbook. And then every year they'd update it further. And it was a wonderful textbook. So the, the, it was a community that knew they all cared about one another. And so if there was a field trip that the older ones would go on to kind of help keep their spirits and morale up, they took the younger ones with them. And if there was a meal to be had, it was shared by all. And if guests came, they definitely went to the street kids school and got to know these young street kids. So it was a very, very strong community that grew up. And, and that's still going on. And what actually was the school or is the school? It was more of a tutoring program, I suppose, in a way. The youngsters couldn't get into government schools because they, they weren't literate. The idea would be that they would come to this weekend tutoring time and be, learn to read and write and learn basics of math. And also everyone was required to, to take a course on nonviolence. That would enable them to get into the government school and they could go half a day to the government school and then work to earn an income for their family the other half of the day. And it's sort of the, what opened the door was the rations that could support their families while they were going to the government school initially. Well, eventually they were 
able to get what they called the border-free center, and that actually moved a few times, but it was a place where this the, the classes could happen with the young kids, and there was a, a small library inside of it and a, a place where the people could meet to plan a, events. There was a very generous group of Quakers in Australia who covered the rent for that for several years, quite a few years in a row. And also an encouragement for girls and young women. Yes. From the very beginning, women had a very equal role. And that was one of the few times for some of these young women that they ever experienced having an equal role to the role of young men. Very often, once a girl hits puberty in that particular society, she becomes a servant to the men in her life, either to her brothers, her father, and her uncles, or eventually to her husband and her husband's family and her children, and then even as a grandmother, she would still be serving the men in her life. So this was quite a break from a pattern. And a lot of the young women, they didn't even have you know money to cover bus fare to come to this center, and their parents might not want them to go to the center, but they would keep on pressing their parents, begging them, please let me do this, this is important. And then some of those women were able to get scholarships to, to study outside the country, and, uh, and that has certainly changed their lives a great deal. As you were saying, one of the encouragements to, for the children to come to the school was a, a food parcel for their families. Also important with the teaching the children was horticulture or agriculture. They were very keen to begin permaculture classes because immediately they could see the wisdom behind being careful to design an area so that crops would stand a better chance of growing and figuring out where it would make sense to have trees to block the wind and how you could clean the soil and how you could um, do different kinds of um, operations basically on plants and trees to help them grow more plants and trees. They, they, these were kids who had a, an easy familiarity with agricultural customs and they could see new ways and they were eager to try them out. And it was in Australia, and again, uh, Rosemary Morrow from the uh, Blue Mountain Permaculture Center, who was uh, is, is a renowned permaculture designer and teacher, and she came many years in a row and, and lived with them and taught classes and shared what she knew quite beautifully. What have you learned from the young people now that the U.S. have actually gone from the ground? I mean... We know now that they're not going to leave Afghanistan in another way. But what are the feelings of the young people? What are they telling you about the last few weeks? Well, I think there was a a, a, a suddenness to the uh, Taliban takeover and people didn't feel prepared for how they could deal with it. They didn't really have information about what they might expect was going to happen and I would have to say there was a, a, just a big uptick in feelings of alarm and a, a sense that we're not safe and we might be targeted. And, of course, many families and many women remembered the terror that they experienced when there was a civil war in Afghanistan and and when there was civil war in Kabul and they wouldn't know which street was going to be attacked or which way they should run or 
you know, whether or not they might be unable completely to protect their children. And so I think that, you know, generationally was passed along and, and there was a very, very great fear of even greater upheaval after there was an announcement of Taliban takeover. And I think, you know, we don't know how the dust is going to settle. It's certainly, to my mind, frightening to see the journalists who were imprisoned very briefly by the Taliban. And when they were released, there were raw red welts covering their backs and shoulders. And, you know, that's also happened to some people who have been preemptively detained because the Taliban think that maybe this person might be involved in the future in some kind of organizing or opposition. So I know there's a a very chilling nuance to uh, all of this news that we read outside of Afghanistan when it's read inside Afghanistan and people think, oh, that could be me. And so when the evacuations were happening, rumors just were flying all over the place that if you had a letter from a Western NGO on their stationery and took that to the airport, you could get on the plane. And so there were all kinds of panicked letters and messages saying, please, please send me a letter. And it took a while to kind of get the word out sufficiently that uh, no such letter could really make a difference. And that, I mean, there was certainly chaos and havoc in the a uh, way in which the United States evacuated the people that were evacuated, but the, the Westerners that my young friends knew really were not part of groups that the United States regarded as designated NGOs. And we didn't have any capacity to say, you know, we employed somebody because these kids were all volunteers. So now um, I think many of them would like to be able to get visas to go to Australia, to go to Canada, to go to the United States. But, um, you know, that, the, the, the time that you wait for such a visa can be 18 to 45 months before you even get a response to an initial request. So I think that many people are adjusting again now to the reality that there may not be a way to escape or a way to flee and uh, it it wouldn't be a quick ticket. And then, of course, you know, when people become refugees, that's a very difficult stretch because, you know, you go for a long time without being able to work and often being hungry and your children can't necessarily go to school when you're, you know, declared a refugee in another country if you're awaiting resettlement again. And I suppose the reason I feel like I know something about that is because we were accompanying many people from Iraq who were really stuck, uh, particularly in Jordan, some in Syria, for three years, typically for three years, before they'd ever be resettled again in another place. And then when you get there, you're kind of starting all over again from scratch. So is there or are there ways for your friends and their families to leave or not? Some have been able to cross a border called the Chaman border into Pakistan. And in Pakistan, there's a long history of Hazaras, the Shia Hazara, having settled in various areas of Pakistan. And so, you know, it's not preposterous to think that somebody might have family members in Pakistan. But um, I'm in touch with about seven or eight right now. There's plenty of anxiety for um, this small group in a new country 
trying to figure out where they can be safe because Pakistani authorities have said, we'll deport Afghans if they're there without a visa, for instance. There are others who just in a few instances have been taken to another place. One person is in Germany. Several have been able to make the beginning steps toward getting into Canada. But I certainly wouldn't say that other countries all around the world that were involved in NATO are throwing their doors open and saying, come, come, we'll welcome you. Don't worry, we want you to come here. We realize that we owe it to you because we invaded and we occupied and we bombed and we helped in a sense to corrupt your country. That's not happening. It should, but it's not happening. Earlier on, you said about the the Taliban, how easily they took over the country, and you've also said it's the the U.S. has a big part in that. They put that latest government in power, or the, the head of the government, the corruption, the incompetence, the uncaring for the people. Well, I think that that's very much. Um, Part of why the Taliban are in power today, the United States protected a government that was incompetent, uh, had rampant corruption going on. Ashraf Ghani himself had said, oh, well, people who flee Afghanistan just want to have fun. Have fun. (laughs) That that didn't go over too well with a lot of people. And then, um, you know, the fact that the only jobs people could get eventually were to work for one warlord or another because that was the only way they could put food on the table. They were so desperate for jobs and for incomes. Well, that meant people were, you know, part of groups like the Afghan National Defense Forces or the Afghan local police or the security details for various warlords, not because they wanted to fight for their country, but because that was the only way they could, you know, feed their children. And so I wasn't at all surprised when uh, there wasn't a a military resistance to the Taliban. And then there were many provinces, uh, maybe the more rural ones, wherein people could see that their own government was so corrupt. You know, if they asked something from the government, they'd have to pay a bribe every step of the way. And sometimes they felt that the Taliban would deliver uh, without all that corruption, uh, truck drivers would say, wow, you know, we don't have to be paying bribes every time we go past a, a roadway, a checkpoint. Or uh, people who had property disputes or land disputes would say, well, these Sharia courts are, are more fair than trying to pay bribes that are demanded by lawyers and judges in the government courts. Now, it remains to be seen how is the Taliban going to set up governance in a country where the drought is so severe and, and, you know, in many provinces, people can't irrigate their crops. They can't feed their livestock because of drought. And so they've been displaced off their lands. There are places where COVID is still sickening many people. There's a third wave of COVID. It's a country that's fraught with all kinds of problems already. And now there's a looming economic catastrophe. So how will the, Taliban be able to govern when they've got so little experience in governance in urban areas in the modern world. Well, who are they going to turn to for help? Well, I should imagine China will be forthcoming with assistance, possibly Russia. Uh, There could be 
some other countries uh, that won't do what the U.S. is doing, which is to have frozen the assets of the Afghan government. And that, you know, I think the United States in its history, for instance, when the United States lost the war in Vietnam, they punished that uh, North Vietnamese governing structure for many, many years. And then finally, you know, other countries had stepped up and helped to rebuild. And, and, and Vietnam is, you know, compared to back then, flourishing. I should imagine that other countries will help. And then the Taliban can also get revenues from charging tolls across all of the roadways, which is how the Afghan government got a, a good deal of its income internally. But but the Afghan government previously also had enormous levels of foreign aid, and I don't know if the United States is going to allow that from U.S. NGOs. It seems, I was... I noticed that many of the United Nations agencies and some of the other NGOs are remaining in the country. And and I think that uh, groups like the International Commission for the Red Cross and the Emergency Surgical Centers for Victims of War and the Mine Clearing Agencies and the Environmental Protection Agencies and the UNHCR will be extremely important in this transition time. But it'll be a while before you'll be able to go back. Oh, I should imagine that's the case, yes. Um, I mean, right now, I would think any group would want to be very wary of welcoming a Westerner. And, and even in the final three years of my own visits to Afghanistan, once upon a time, we, we would go for a month and a half or two months. We pared that back to 10 days. And in earlier visits, I wouldn't think twice about walking in the street by myself if I wanted to go out and send an email message or and, and to walk at night alone. But in those last uh, three or four years, I barely left the household once I got to Afghanistan. Thank you so much once again, Kathy. Uh, thank you, Jan. Uh, thanks for all your abiding care about people in Afghanistan. I certainly see... Uh, you and your listeners as people who are very distinguished from uh, many of the mainstream media people. More attention has been paid to Afghanistan in the last two weeks than was paid in the last 20 years. And uh, that's been to our loss, but you have not been one of those people who turned away. The totally dedicated Kathy Kelly. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Next, the second and final part of the interview with activist for West Papua, Jason McLeod. The issue is the role of the Australian Federal Police in human rights abuses in West Papua. 
So it's not only who they're training, but what that training involves. Have there been any whistleblowers for people to find out actually what they do in those training courses? You know, we've we've been kind of digging into this. The AFP basically provides a whole lot of leadership capacity training. They train in uh, train people in surveillance. They including you know um, social media monitoring, uh, which has been very useful for tracking down political activists in West Papua. There, I think there's there's 20 or 30 different courses they offer, uh, and the whole point is that this just strengthens the effectiveness of the Indonesian National Police um, and strengthens their ability to carry out human rights violations. I'm aware that the AFP have a training place down at Queenscliff. Do they also bring soldiers or whatever from Indonesia to that place? Indonesian police and Indonesian military regularly come to Australia uh, for training. And as far as I know, there is no vetting of those people. You know, previously the US government did put in a... This is during East Timor days. They did put in a policy to exclude people who have, you know, uh, a record of, of violence and were involved in human rights abuses. As far as I know, the AFP uh, and the Australian government are not doing that, and they need to do it. Otherwise, we are complicit in it. We are providing political cover. Uh, we're emboldening the Indonesian National Police as they carry out uh, attacks against ordinary West Papuans. Yeah, so that, that training in, in various police institutions, in military bases, has continued, and it's, it's been ongoing for decades, yeah. What's in the constitution or whatever of the Australian Federal Police that allows it to interfere in the politics of another country? Yes, yeah, so this and that's effectively what they're doing. They are partisan. They're providing partisan support for a violent occupation and they should not be getting getting involved. At the very least, they should be excluding human rights abuses from the training. But the interesting thing is we, we quizzed the AFP on this and initially they told Make West Papua Safe that they had guidelines in place to ensure that they maintained human rights standards. And we tried to get a copy of those guidelines, they refused to supply them. We were eventually able to get a copy of the guidelines and when we looked into it, it was completely clear that those guidelines are totally inadequate. All the guidelines talk about is protecting Australian citizens from cruel and from torture and cruel and degrading treatment at the hands of law enforcement officials in a foreign country like Indonesia. They don't talk about ensuring that they exclude human rights abusers from training. They don't talk about monitoring what happens to the alumni they're trained. They don't talk about any kind of human rights education or anti-racism, you know, policies to ensure that those violent attitudes and behaviours that are so prevalent in the Indonesian National Police 
are eradicated. We've been told by the AFP that they are developing new guidelines, but so far they've been completely silent. One of our political allies, the the Green Senator, actually put in a FOI, a parliamentary FOI request. So it's it's called the order, an order to produce documents, and she wanted to actually get hold of the governance documents that I, the AFP's work in Shadeclick. She also asked for a list of uh, everyone who's been trained at the AFP because they've been hiding that sort of stuff. And she wanted to know all the all communication details between the AFP and Untung Sengaji, who's been involved in those two deaths in custody um, in Maralke. And the Australian Labor Party and the Liberal National Party both refused to support that order to produce documents. So there is active complicity, not only by the AFP, but by the LNP and the ALP, to cover up right to know what is going on at JCLEC and the connections between the AFP, JCLEC and human rights violations in West Papua. Have you investigated the AFP in any other country? No, we've, we've been focused entirely on, on West Papua. We haven't looked at the AFP's role uh, in other countries. What about military training, Australian Defence Force training in Indonesia, which impacts on West Papua? Yeah, so the, the Australian Defence Force uh, continues to train continues to train the Indonesian military and, you know, they're involved in joint exercises both in Australia and and overseas. Uh, And again, you know, there is very little transparency about the numbers of those trained and where they're trained. But generally they're at, you know, a range of of bases around in every every state and territory. Particular focus at this site, places like, you know, Canungra and Queenscliff and, and other places. But there's another dimension that's been added to this, which is that arms companies are now involved. So there's a range of Australian arms companies who continue to sell to the Indonesian military. And so that includes companies like Thales, which is involved in kind of making submarines and Melbourne's trams. You know, includes Boeing, uh, British Aerospace, Boeing, uh, EOI, Elbert, uh, an Israeli company that's involved in the occupation of Palestine. And, you know, we, we've tracked some of these arms from companies like Talas that have wound up in the conflict uh, in West Papua. So, for instance, you know, we've, uh, our colleagues have found unexploded ordnance, rockets from villages in Duga and Punchak and in Tanjaya. So the Australian, Australian arms companies are literally making a killing out of the conflict uh, in West Papua. And Carlos also sells the Bushmaster, uh, which is kind of a cross between a tank and a truck to capacity the Indonesian special forces. And looks like this has just increased uh, under Morrison government as... You know, these billions of dollars in subsidies are being handed out to weapons companies. 
And at the receiving end of all this, uh, the freedom fighters in West Papua. Ordinary West Papuans, you know, uh, they're ordinary civilians. They're the armed struggle that is waging a war up in the highlands. And it also includes civil resistance uh, fighters, which actually make up the majority of the movement. So the unarmed civilian-based, you know, popular struggle. And that, that includes groups like the Petisi Rakyat Papua or the Papuan People's Petition, civil society organisations. Um, based in West Papua, and they're calling for a referendum as you know a free and democratic way to resolve the political conflict. But yeah, all those folks are on the receiving end. So my friend Victor Yemo, for instance, he was arrested by a special anti-terror police unit called Sakgas Namankawi. Um, they arrested him on the 9th of May of this year, and he's been held in solitary confinement uh, ever since, actually yesterday he was transferred to a hospital for medical treatment uh, as a result of incredible pressure by uh, activists and church leaders and lawyers and human rights defenders. And that police unit has links with people like Boy Rafliama, who's heavily involved with the Australian Federal Police at JCLEC. So yes, the, and it's amazing, uh, Jan, you know, those, those West Papuans are absolutely determined to get their country back. And they are holding on to their language and their culture uh, in the process of doing it. And they are just not going to stop up uh, at all. And in fact, the, the movement inside the country is growing uh, in strength and fearlessness. Other parts of society as well. You know, you've recently, recently seen the governor, for instance, become more and more outspoken uh, of the way the Indonesian police and military are operating in West Papua. And yet we can't get hardly one Western country to support the people of West Papua, but they are getting support from Pacific nations. The Pacific has been fantastic, particularly, you know, I want to especially mention Vanuatu. Vanuatu, you know, it's a small country, uh, you know, it's a couple of hundred thousand, uh, I don't think its population is even 300,000 people, 70 odd islands, and they've been absolutely resolute and fearless, staunch in their support for West Papua's right to self-determination. And they often talk quotes, you know, their founding leader, a man by the name of Walter Lini, who basically says, Vanuatu will never be free unless every single country in the region is free. And, you know, he specifically mentioned West Papua, Kanaki, Marinui. And so, you know, they, they provided an important political base for the movement and they have helped draw in the support from other Pacific Island countries as well. That's now spreading is, um, you know, recently with Vanuatu's assistance, West Papuan leaders addressed African and Caribbean leaders. Uh, and there were some 70 countries who then expressed their support for human rights, for the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights to come in and in investigate what's going on. And that, that support, that call was actually was taken up by the Pacific Island Forum, despite you know Australia and New Zealand trying to block it. That, that actually got through. 
So, yeah, the, the, you know, international pressure is slowly growing. Uh, and like I said, the West Papuans are absolutely determined to get their country back. You know, I think someone who's sort of been accompanying and observing that movement uh, for the last 30 years, I, I think it's one of the most inspiring popular struggles, particularly nonviolent struggles in, uh, in the entire world. Thank you so much, Jason. My pleasure, Jan. Thanks for, you know, helping get the story out, hey? It's a, Good it's a secret story. Yes, shouldn't uh, it? And, you're, and you're, you're making it less, less secret. You're opening it up. Exactly what's needed. Thank yep. you. Activist Jason McLeod from Make West Papua Safe. Look them up. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. We return today to the increasing desperate situation facing Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab, kidnapped in June last year after being taken off a plane in Cabo Verde, held in isolation and denied medical care and facing extradition to the United States. I'm speaking with activist for Venezuela, Joe Montero. Just fill us in, Joe, for the background to this one. Well, to start off, Alex Saab is a diplomat of Venezuela. On June the 12th last year, he was on a flight from Venezuela. The plane stopped at, uh, I can't pronounce the place, I keep on forgetting the name of the place, but Gabo Verde, which is an island state just off the, uh, the west coast of Africa. It stopped there to uh, refuel. And while it was down, a bunch of police officers came and dragged him out of the plane and he was under arrest. So that's basically what happened. Now, the reason given is that Alex Saab had a warrant out for him from the United States for money laundering. There was not an Interpol notice. That came later, shortly after he was grabbed. But anyway, he was put into solitary confinement. What's happened since is that the actual charge was actually dropped and he's wanted really for breaking uh, US sanctions on Venezuela. He was apparently involved working a trade deal with Iran at the time. 
He was on the way there on that flight. He had just been appointed as ambassador to the African uh, organisation, Organisation of African States. He was arrested. He was put into solitary confinement. That case came up fairly quickly before the uh, Organisation of West African State Court of Justice because Capo Verde is a member and it was actually declared illegal and it was ignored on the grounds that he is not under arrest, he's under house detention, although it is not true. That's been, it's been over a year that he has been locked up. He has also been prevented most of the time from having any visitors, our family, our supporters, lawyers and so on. There are a number of cases. It's gotten gotten a bit complicated in the legal system. Uh, So that brings us up to now. The key issue is that under international law, somebody in the diplomatic service has immunity. The United States has said, well, we don't recognise the government of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, so we don't recognise people working for this government as working for the legitimate government. The problem with that argument is that when a a nation has to deal with Venezuela or an embassy, it has to deal with the actually operating embassy. For instance, if if there's a passport issue, you need to go to someone or to to a body that's actually got a link with this servant serving government in the country. Otherwise, uh, you don't get anywhere. So, well, on the one hand, even the United States has to deal with the embassies of Venezuela. It doesn't recognise them at the same time. The problem is that in practice, there is an acceptance of Alex Saab's, for instance, role as ambassador. So that is going through the legal process at the moment. One problem that they, the United States did have is that the organisation, a West African uh, State Court of Justice, has ruled his apprehension as illegal. That is supposed to be binding on the court of Gabo Verde, but they've ignored it so far. And the main reason is that Gabo Verde is actually very dependent on money from the United States for the the economy to survive. It has very little industry. Most of the money that does come into the place comes from people working in the United States. Their own nationals going and remitting money back to their families. So they're in a precarious position and they have been squeezed. So this stuff has got out. Can I take you back to the beginning? How did they know or who knew that he was on that plane in the first place? I'm assuming that uh, obviously the, the record is there and, and somebody actually from the airline, from wherever it was, the information passed through to authorities uh, uh, of the United States. And the assumption is that, uh, that Cabo Verde was, was uh, notified. These sanctions that the US has on Venezuela... They're not recognised by the UN, are they? 
No, no, they're not. In actual fact, uh, there's been a lot of pressure at the UN to have them lifted. Although initially they did, the European Union seems to be going cold and they haven't actually said they're not participating in the sanctions, but keep them very quiet about it. And there's, there's, there's a bit of a move going in Europe to actually move from this. So no, no one else really, even the Australian government says it is not participating in the sanctions. Well, that's a change, isn't it? It's not exactly 100% honest because although they don't directly participate in the sanctions, uh, they cooperate with them. All right. So I don't know what the real distinction is, but uh, there is a political distinction because uh, we know that from the campaign here because we've actually put it to them and they've actually said that and they've sent it to us in writing that, no, we don't participate in any sanctions. What has the African Union done about this? Well, the African Union, uh, for instance, on the generally it's all along African countries have not supported the sanctions or the attacks on Venezuela in the United Nations. It's been pretty much across the board. They have declared that uh, Alex Saab's detention is illegal as well, and they have actually brought it before the United Nations. They're not the only country. It's actually the submissions have been put by a number of countries, including uh, some that you would suspect, uh, which is Iran, Russia and China have all put in submissions. The United Nations has now taken an official position that the detention is illegal and that he should be released. The United Nations have made it quite clear to the United States that, uh, that this is not right. Now, this man is suffering from cancer. He's now been yes. in prison, sometimes in isolation, all that time. Has anyone seen him lately to see how his health is? He did manage to get a visit earlier this year. I don't know what happened since then. Uh, I mean, there was concern about his health. I don't know how far that goes, but there is certainly concern about it. But on the other hand, he, he is fighting the issue hard himself. He has actually... Uh, he recently had a case in the, in the US, which I'll speak about in a moment, but certainly he, he has come out up and he said he's going to fight this all the way. It's becoming pretty clear that that uh, few countries support Washington and what they're doing. It's been kept very quiet in Australia. I mean, the, the Australian government is one example of a government that's very close to Washington, extremely close, won't say anything about it. They just keep quiet on the whole issue. Talk a bit more about the case in the US. The case in the US uh, was lodged by Alex Saab's lawyers, and it relates to the uh, systematic violation of international norms that it has no legal authority, his, uh, his arrest. Uh, now, that's gone before the circuit court. There are two things going on. There is that, plus there's also the international, and in Africa, of course, legal moves happening at the moment. So the United States' response to that was being to, at, at the case on the 24th of August, the uh, prosecution put in for an adjournment. 
before the uh, final decision of the court is made. And that is on, uh, let me check up the date, on the 7th of October, it's due. Now, the reason for the delay, and that was quite open, is that they want to find out what the international decision is going to be from the international legal process. Because of that, declares openly that the case, so the detention is illegal, then that will impact on the case in the United States. So they're hoping at the moment, and again, an assumption is that behind the scenes there is pressure being put to try to hold back any international reaction at government level. There is a lot of international support, though. You've mentioned countries, but also, indivi- yes. but also individuals. Yes, uh, there, there have been uh, a range of prominent people, and I don't have the names with me at the moment, but there's also uh, an international petition uh, has just started to circulate around the place, and certainly it's getting people to sign up. That's in the next uh, couple of weeks, that's bound to grow considerably. How do people access that? One way to access it is there is a, an organisation called the Alliance for Global Justice that we're doing, and uh, afgi.org. Google it and uh, you'll find it uh, uh, probably more directly because they deal with a number of other cases, afgi.org slash free hyphen Alex hyphen Sab. Yeah, Alex Sabs. Can you talk for a few minutes about the situation as you know it in Venezuela at the moment? Yeah, there have been some developments. I mean, yes, the sanctions are continuing to make life very hard there, denying food and medicine. And an important thing is spare parts to keep industry going. Uh, you know, one of the areas, of course, is the uh, power generation, also the oil industry. But it, it cuts further than that. Politically, uh, the main thing that's going on there that in a couple of months there's going to be elections for uh, governors and mayors across the country. And so the country is gearing up for that. Uh, the PSUV, which is the government party, I, uh, have recently concluded their primaries where they've had some 60,000 people applied for uh to stand for mayor or governor in some place or other in Venezuela. It's a huge number, and and they had to go through the process of actually presenting what they've got to offer to their communities and get accepted by the communities. That's the electoral process. What has happened in the last week or so is that the opposition grouping around Juan Guaido, he was the bloke who declared himself president uh, a little while back, have actually decided to participate for the first time in ages in any election process, which makes it quite difficult for the United States. So that will happen with their participation as it goes. Now, the reason they've given is that the European Union have agreed to send an observer team. In actual fact, which is consistent, the United States has been asked to, uh, you know, been invited to send their own observer team to make sure that they can see with their eyes that things are above board. Uh, so far, they've refused to do so. But 
Tom, this, uh, you know, there can't be a lot of talk about a boycott of an election because it isn't fair this time because every party in Venezuela will be participating in it. So that's going to have an effect uh, that it will make the sanctions and the non-recognition of the government there more untenable than it was before. So the United States are in a difficult position. Now, one factor that could come into it that uh, that Guaido's position had become so weak that at the beginning of the year, the United States did say that they would review whether they would continue to support him or not at the end of this year. There's only a couple of months to go before that decision is made. So in that sense, it's looking quite positive. So it is a significant development. The, the other part of the, the developments this year have been that there has been an increasing points of unity between uh, the government and the opposition. And it's mainly centred around the idea that Venezuelans should be the people who are deciding the future of Venezuela. But there's also uh, 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 fairly much across the board, except the, those closest to Guaido, that Venezuela has changed since the uh, 1990s, and that's a reality that's got to be recognised. So that's an important uh, change for the place, because until this, the opposition basically demanded uh, the political system and uh, you know the political environment there was in the uh, 1990s. How have the sanctions impacted on the ability of the government to help the people with COVID? It's had an effect. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Although I have to say that that Venezuela has done remarkably well despite everything. Part of the uh, the thing was that they particularly had a lot of support from China as far as uh, getting early in the piece of, of getting equipment, their medical equipment and uh, medicines and, and so on. They also took a very early approach to tackling. Instead of waiting to see until the pandemic really hit, they reacted very early and focused a lot on instead of getting people to go to a point to to be checked out or go to a hospital if they feel sick, that medical practitioners or volunteers actually visited people at home and they dealt with them and they dealt with their families according to their needs so they didn't have to go somewhere where they would uh, more easily spread the infection. When you compare the rate of infection to the two major countries bordering Venezuela, which is Colombia and Brazil, there's no comparison. I mean, Colombia and Brazil are the worst infected countries in the South American continent. People know about about Brazil. It's uh, on the scale of what happened last year in the United States and Colombia, not far behind it. Given that, given the restrictions and the sanctions, they've done remarkably well. And this approach to health is because of the influence of Cuba? They, they learn from each other. I mean, various countries uh, around the continent. And there's a very different approach to medicine in Venezuela, which is, which is like Cuba, that medicine is not something to make an industry to make a dollar out of. It is a service to the people. That's a very different view of, of medicine.
in Australia, for instance, we, we, we've been travelling for some years in the opposite direction. Final words, Joe? It is still very important uh, for, obviously, for Alex Saab to get the support, whatever support he can get, because it is the tide of public opinion around the world that's going to make all the difference. But also for Venezuela, uh, and I like to remind people that there is a government, whether you like a particular policy or not, that this is the government chosen overwhelmingly again and again by the people of Venezuela. It's their choice, and we should respect their choice, and we should be telling our government, respect the choice of another people. I mean, no other country on this planet has had to go in the period of 20, about 22 years, had to undergo more than 20 elections. And the only election that was actually recognised by the United States was that where Guaido got himself into the parliament. Not because he was tremendously popular, but because in their electoral system, each electorate gets two candidates to get into parliament. The person who comes first and the person who comes second. Now, they have a straight pass, highest vote, gets the first position. Then they have a preferential system, something like Australia, to get the second one up. So Guaido got up with about 20% of the vote because the other opposition candidates actually gave him their second preferences. So that's how he got into the parliament. He's a nobody in Venezuela. You know, the main thing is to respect the, the decision of the people and also to recognise that sanctions are economic war, which are directed against the population. They're not directed against the government because the denial of food, medicines and other vital needs affects the population, not so much the government. And we need to recognise that it is a crime against humanity especially when people start dying from it. Thank you for all that. No problems. It was a pleasure. I was speaking there with Joe Montero. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. I'm bisexual. It's time to stand by us. Following the success of our free inaugural event last year, Bike Plus Collective Australia proudly presents the second Stand By Us Forum to celebrate Bike Plus Visibility Day. All events are free and all bar one happen online. Starting with the opening First Nations keynote on the morning of Thursday 23rd September, Celebrate Bisexuality Day, there will be fun events like a Bi Plus Games Meetup, artsy bi events including the biconic performances and panel discussions on themes such as queering relationships for those who are bi and polyamorous. To check out the program, including the Safe Space Guidelines, visit our webpage standbyus.com. That's S-T-A-N-D-B-I-U-S dot com. It's time to stand by us. A 3CR supporter.
Today we're asking the question, how did a lone aid worker in Gaza end up on trial for the largest theft of aid money in history? I spoke with Noura Mansour, a Palestinian educator, writer, activist and community organiser now living in Australia, to talk about the person in question, Mohammed El Halabi, and asked her what she knew of his career prior to his arrest on the 12th of July. 2016. So Mohammed Halabi uh, had been working with World Vision Australia for 10 years before he was arrested. He was the World Vision um, Operation Manager in Gaza and he was in charge of programs that are targeted at providing support and empowerment to farmers in Gaza in the, agri- in the agricultural sector but also he was working with children and other marginalized groups in Gaza such as people with disability uh, and special needs. What were the circumstances of his arrest? Uh, Muhammad al-Halabi was arrested when he was on his way back to Gaza. He was in Jerusalem and he was detained at Erez Crossing. He was held then for 50 days without access to lawyer and without being charged. Did his family or his employer know where he was? Not until uh, Israel has decided to charge him, to press charges, basically. But uh, for the first 50 days of his arrest, it wasn't clear where uh, he was held. And the charges against him? So Israel has charged um, Hamad al-Halabi with basically diverting um, aid money, $50 million of aid money to Hamas. But this obviously a charge that uh, just simply didn't add up as um, World Vision's entire budget at that time, uh, the time of which Mohammed Halabi was uh, employed by World Vision, uh, was only um, approximately $22 million. How do they justify that figure? Uh, they don't justify that figure. There's no justification. But basically what they're saying is that he was funneling money to um, Hamas. But what we know is that there's been two investigations carried out, one by World Vision Australia and the other one by the Australian government, both of which have resulted in a clear outcome that says that these allegations are simply unsubstantiated. So there was no objective evidence to support the Israeli claim that Mohammed al-Halabi diverted money to Hamas. Nevertheless, he's been in jail for over five years been in jail for over five years. It has been in the concluding phase for almost a year, since December 22. You know, obviously, this is not something that meets the criteria of fair trial or even a democratic trial. And this is what we know of the uh, proceedings of this trial, that uh, from the get-go, from his arrest, 50 days without access to lawyer, including the, um, the other proceedings of, of the trial in which his lawyers and, and defense team have been um, prevented from properly examining certain evidence. And all the way to this concluding phase, we know that this process has not met or has failed to meet the criteria of a fair trial. He now has lawyers of his own choice? I believe so. I believe, yes. The team of lawyers are of his choice. What is World Vision doing now after all these years? So uh, recently there's been um, an opinion piece by World Vision that we saw that was published um, by Tim Costello that basically explains the entire involvement of World Vision and how 
that they actually believe that, you know, given the fact that they have commissioned international um, team or an international um, firm to conduct the audits, that um, there is no reason why Israel, no valid reason for Israel to continue holding Muhammad immediate release of Muhammad al-Halabi as well. So they are joining a campaign, a global campaign, um, that is demanding the immediate release of Muhammad al-Halabi. Is this setting a precedent? Has someone, anyone else been charged in a similar way? Look, Muhammad al-Halabi is one of 4,650 Palestinian prisoners, 520 of whom are administrative detainees. So Muhammad al-Halabi is not the first prisoner to, um, to start as an administrative detainee, meaning being held without charges or um, access to lawyers. But however, his case is very special in the sense that so far we've had almost um, 160 plus court hearings without having a proper resolution. As I mentioned earlier, the, the evidence that has been presented to, in court has been presented in a very restricted manner. Lawyers have, uh, were not allowed to examine it properly. Um, uh, his lawyer uh, actually stated in one of the interviews that he was only allowed to look at uh, the document, but he was not presented with the original document. Uh, nor was he allowed to take copies so that he can properly do work on the document. A lot of it has been also wrapped in, in secrecy, and which is also something that is normally, uh, like, it's not unheard of when we're dealing with Palestinian prisoners. Um, many, many cases we hear that the Israeli court has, has evidence, but it's secret evidence, which means you have nothing to work with as a defense team. Why have there been so many court hearings? Simply because, so the assessment is that the, the Israeli government or the Israeli authorities have nothing, um, no substantial evidence against Muhammad al-Halabi. And this is why this court has taken so court hearings and have been granted for almost for over five years. What we know about this case is that it's not directed at Muhammad al-Halabi, but as he says, and um, as his uh, team of um, defense also that this is targeting humanitarian work and humanitarian aid uh, in Gaza, specifically in Gaza, but also in the entire Palestinian territories. So Muhammad al-Halabi has been offered many plea deals by the Israeli Authority. If he would have accepted one of them, he would have been released by now. But Muhammad is uh, basically uh, just has always maintained the stance that he has not committed any of the, those crimes and that he will not admit to something that he hasn't done. So this stance basically, obviously, has been consistent throughout the five years. How has this case affected aid to both Gaza and the West Bank? Yeah, obviously this case has been detrimental in the sense World Vision Australia had to suspend their programs to Gaza right after the charge were pressed uh, or basically presented by the Israeli authority against Mohammed al-Halabi. Yeah, this is one of the, um, basically the outcomes, or maybe one of the outcomes, but also goals that the Israeli uh, government was hoping to achieve. What do you know about the conditions of his imprisonment? Uh, we know that Mohammed has been subjected to torture uh, and mistreatment in prison. Uh, he's almost lost hearing in one of his ears. He's been held in um, inhuman conditions. He's lost, obviously, a lot of weight. So we know that the conditions in which he was held or he is held 
are not also are not fit for a fair fair process. Is he allowed visitors? No, he's not allowed visitors other than his lawyers. What about his family? So, um, Muhammad Al-Halabi has five children, uh, the youngest of whom he hasn't actually seen in five years, and, and he was born just a couple of months before he was detained. This must be having a devastating impact on the family. It is. His arrest, his unlawful arrest, basically, has had uh, a devastating impact on his family, um, on his children, and you know his parents as well. His father is one of his uh, most active champions. He's determined that he will highlight and keep campaigning for uh, the release of his son. You mentioned that this case has gone worldwide. I believe that the UN has become involved. Yes, that is correct. So um, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in the Occupied Territory, uh, Michael Link, has also issued a statement and a report saying that standards of which the Israeli government is conducting the, the uh, court against Mohammed al-Halabi are uh, undemocratic and, and are not fit uh, for a democratic country. And, and he's called for his, his immediate release as well. No reaction to that? No. He has been to trial in July this year. What happened then? Since July this year, the Israeli courts keep postponing the, the hearing. There hasn't been any clear intention at finalizing uh, or really bringing this whole process into a conclusion. There was a court in, um, that was scheduled a couple of weeks ago that was postponed for uh, what, November, sometime in November. So currently, this is where the court hearing, the, the procedures are standing. What's to be done to support him? Well, I think this is a good question, Jan, because this is clearly a case in which the Israeli authorities feel like they have nothing to work with. And this is why they keep stalling the entire process. What we need to be doing is that we need to be constantly putting Mohammed Halabi's case on the agenda. Mohammed Halabi is not has done nothing uh, wrong. Mohammed Al-Halabi uh, is a humanitarian worker. He's a humanitarian. What was also uh, he was also granted a humanitarian hero title by the by the United Nations for the uh, amazing work that he was doing throughout his time working with World Vision Australia. So he's an innocent man that has been locked in prison for five years with no allegation, no proper or substantiated allegation against him. It's important that all human rights organizations actually take this case into the next level. Mohammed Halabi has been detained because Israel wants to end the work and to want, they want to limit the work of international organization and humanitarian aid uh, organizations uh, in Gaza. So he's there because of the kind of work that he was doing, which is obviously not illegal by any standards or by, by any measures or laws. What can individuals listening to this interview do? There's been few campaigns. The Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network has launched a campaign to support Mohammed Al-Halabi. Uh, they can visit the, um, the website of APAN and basically just take you know, one or two minutes to send an email and join the campaign. 
we can all just keep surfacing and talking and highlighting um, the case of Muhammad al-Halabi. Uh, we can contact our MPs and demand that they also talk about Muhammad al-Halabi and demand that we're not asking for uh, something extra. We're not asking for favors. We're just asking for uh, a proper due process that fits the um, standards and criteria of democratic countries. So. Uh, this is what we should all be uh, demanding and, um, re and and pushing for. Okay, thanks very much. No worries, thank you. I've been speaking with Noura Mansour, and to find out more about how you can assist, get onto the webpage of APAN, apan.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. J.R. Bolsonaro is the 38th President of Brazil, who assumed power on the 1st of January 2019. A politician prior to that of nearly 20 years in the world's fourth largest democracy. The next election is scheduled for October 2022, but already there are rumblings of a possible military coup by Bolsonaro and his allies. Today, activist, author and journalist Fred Fuentes looks back on two and a half years of the Bolsonaro presidency, what it has meant for Brazil and the likelihood of his return to power. But first briefly, Fred, the not-so-democratic goings-on which led him to the presidency. That's right. So the, the elections essentially that paved the way to the election of Jair Bolsonaro were preceded by what has largely been referred to by many as, as a parliamentary or a constitutional coup uh, that occurred against the previous government, uh, the government of Dilma Rousseff, who was the, the presidential candidate or the elected president uh, from the Workers' Party. Using sort of the, their control of the judicial system, opposition forces essentially and sorry, as well as the judicial system, the, the parliament, they essentially in, impeached Dilma, 
in what later was revealed to have been all largely trumped up charges, most of the charges, you know, subsequently being dropped. It was even debatable whether they could be impeached on the, the supposed charges that, that were put against Dilma. But, but the point was that they, they used this to successfully depose Dilma from the presidency and on top of that, launch a legal case against who was going to be the PT's candidate for the subsequent election, which was Lula Ignacio de Silva, uh, who had previously also been president of Brazil uh, and was leading the polls. But again, uh, using trumped-up charges, put him in jail, barred him from being able to run in the elections. Following the elections, was subsequently cleared of all charges and will now be contesting the, the future elections. But this is, this is sort of what precedes Bolsonaro's election, essentially a, a constitutional coup, and then the barring of the most popular candidate being able to stand in the elections that, that Bolsonaro ultimately wins. And there were plenty of warning bells ringing as he prepared to take over that job. Well, that's right. Look, uh, so Bolsonaro's background, for a long time, very much a, a little-known senator. You know, he'd, he'd been in the Senate, I think it was about 30 years, but, yeah, just a an outsider figure, not, not really you know, much known at all. Uh, outsider, I mean, as in like not, not really in the sort of public consciousness. Prior to that, he, he had been in the military. And yeah, he, he has a very far right, some would even perhaps even go as far as say as a sort of a fascist ideology. You know, he's, his model for Brazil is the, the, the military dictatorships of, of the 60s. He says if, if there's anything that could be criticised of the, of the dictatorship in Brazil is that it didn't go far enough in, in wiping out the, the, the red menace and wiping out the communists and hence why we're still having to deal with uh, things like the Workers' Party in society today. So what he was able to do was essentially, well, firstly, build up a high level of support, well, uh, enough of support amongst a a section of Brazilian society that after uh, essentially four consecutive terms of Workers' Party government because of their reactionary leanings felt like this, this now had to be the time to finally get the Workers' Party not just out of government but out of politics altogether. So Bolsonaro very much ran on an ultra-reactionary, anti-PT, you know, associating PT with communism uh, sort of line, was able to do that to essentially garner enough votes to get into the second round of the presidential elections, which pitted him against the, the Workers' Party candidate, and then essentially made it over the finish line by just saying to the rest of to all the other opposition parties, you know, all the ones who had participated in getting rid of the PT, getting rid of Dilma or of jailing Lawler, to say, well, look, now your only option uh, to ensure the PT don't get back into power is to vote for me. Uh, and so he was able to do that to then galvanise enough of that anti-PT vote to win the elections. That was always going to be a, a fragile a fragile support base. And so he, and he knew that as well, uh, because he was never part of that sort of, uh, you know, those traditional parties that had ruled prior to to the Workers' Party. His party was a very small sort of fringe party and really didn't have its own big electoral base. It had just basically been able to rally enough of support in the first round and then force the other opposition parties to to come behind it. I'd imagine it was well known, his views on social issues. Yeah, in in that way, he's often, you know, uh, been sort of, uh, you know, likened to Trump. I I don't think it's a a fair comparison. I I think, you know, in in many ways, uh, Jair Bolsonaro has much more ideological and much more, you know, very much of that, that sort of fascist outlook that he has of life. But in terms of constantly being politically incorrect in the way that he would refer to women, to the LGBTI community, you know, all of these things were very, very well known. And in fact, he, 
he made an effort to, to raise those issues in his, in his campaign. And, and not unlike Trump, some of those attitudes helped to galvanise a, you know, a bit of support uh, for him amongst you know, obviously the more reactionary sections in society. Well, he's only been in power for about two and a half years. How would you judge what that's meant for Brazil and some people also say for the world? I think, you know, and by far the, the clearest example of it is uh, of just the disastrous level of what his government has meant for Brazil is, is the, the COVID situation. You know, the COVID situation in Brazil is, you know, certainly has to be up there in, in one of the worst situations facing any country uh, in the world today when we talk about uh, the numbers of lives lost, the, just the, the, the ongoing levels of the pandemic, uh, extreme low levels of vaccination, the complete collapse of hospital systems, add to that. You know, what's, what's been happening with the increasing rate of deforestation in, in the Amazon region. You know, overall, you know, this, by far it's been a, very much a, a disastrous situation for Brazil, whether we look at it uh, in the health, health issues, in the environmental issues, even, even on a global, global level in terms of relations with other countries. You know, very much Brazil today is, is seen as a bit of a pariah on the global scale. Of course, we're under Trump, they were able to have very close relations with the US, and that's that's still maintained there under, with Biden. Although Trump was much more open about his support for Bolsonaro, Biden, of course, has to be a bit more quieter. It's, it doesn't suit his sort of uh, standing to to be seen as being too too aligned with with Bolsonaro. But those those relations have have, have stood there. But regionally, Brazil's influence uh, has declined under under Bolsonaro, and and globally, you know, at, at summits, you know, Brazil is very much always seen as like the, the sort of the pariah, the one that, that's yeah, really having a bad impact, uh, whether it comes to COVID, whether it comes to climate change, had an impact. And that's, and that's been reflected in, in the polls where you've now seen you know, Bolsonaro support internally in the country also sliding. What about the economy under Bolsonaro? The economy certainly hasn't improved. Uh, I mean, of course, it has to be put in the context of a, a worldwide global recession and, and, and COVID. So it's it probably would be unfair to say that, that Bolsonaro has had the best of circumstances to, to deal with, uh, but Bolsonaro's project has always been very clear to closely align the, the Brazilian estate with transnational capital. That policy has historically failed South America, Latin America, and arguably other regions of the world, although um, you know, focusing on, on what's, what's occurring in, in, in Brazil and in the region that Brazil's in. Um, and it certainly hasn't had any positive impact uh, in, in the recent time and you can see that almost in any economic indicator you want to look at whether it's GDP growth through the uh, growing levels of, of inequality and poverty in the country. What has he meant for the indigenous peoples of Brazil? As with uh, in terms of women's rights, LGBTI rights, you know, he's also been very clear on his anti-indigenous sort of views in the century that indigenous people in, in his mind, backward people holding back the country they need to be pushed off their land and paved the way for, for agribusiness. And those ideas have been followed through with, with actual policies. So one big flashpoint, not the biggest, but you know, certainly an important flashpoint of protests against Bolsonaro's policies have been to do with uh, Indigenous rights in the country. An issue that's been burning for a long time, but, that, but certainly that has become uh, even more, uh, more of a flashpoint in the country under Bolsonaro. I believe that he's sacked his defence minister. He's got rid of the heads of the army, navy, and air force. Why? See, this is the big challenge. So Bolsonaro was hoping to be able to build a, a social base of his own. You know, as I said, he, you know, he was able to rally an important but still a minority segment of society. 
to win enough votes in the first round, but had to had to reach out to other levels for the second round. Uh, what we've seen since those elections is a lot of those other sections that he's reached out to have started to really question their support for Bolsonaro, and some of them have essentially now gone into open opposition. So, for example, many of the opposition parties that supported him in the second round are now trying to, as they did with Dilma, to push to see if they can impeach him and remove him uh, from power and, and you know, potentially stop him from being our run in next presidential elections. Similarly with the military, obviously there would, I imagine there would be different views in the military, but the high level of the military there is certainly disquiet with the direction Bolsonaro is taking the country. And so that, it raised the vector of what you know, people have talked about of, of the potential of a military coup. Not necessarily a military coup to support Bolsonaro, but rather a military coup perhaps to, to remove him. So there's been tensions there as well where you know, he's moved to, to sack certain people from the military, then had to basically step back from that. His vice presidential candidate is from the military as well. There's a constant tension there uh, in, in the relationship that, that exists there. In terms of his other ministers, I mean, the, the constant corruption scandals that have, that have emerged as well have been a, a big factor in why uh, he's constantly having to, to sack ministers in, in particular. I, I think I've lost count of how many health ministers they've, they've gone through in the context of the, the COVID crisis. Not just sackings, but also ministers resigning because of just being unable to work with Bolsonaro given his views on, on COVID, you know, which is essentially are, you know, borderline, if not outright, just denial of the fact that COVID even exists. You mentioned threats to impeach him, but what about the five federal lawsuits against him? Who's brought those forward and what's the consequences? What could the consequences of those be? This is where everything becomes complicated and mixed up because, because there, there is so many different avenues that have been opened up against Bolsonaro. What is really the bigger discussion is which of these fronts is the best one to approach or to move forward, and what are the potential consequences or the potential reaction by Bolsonaro were they to push forward. And in that case, Bolsonaro also understands that what is at play now is, is really our testing out of the balance of forces. He knows that, on the one hand, he's lost electoral support, probably down to somewhere in the 20 20%, maybe a bit more, 25%. On the other hand, he knows that that 20 25% is a very strong militant support. So it's not just people who are probably, you know, just vaguely like Bolsonaro and going to go and vote for him, but people willing to take to the streets for him. And we saw that actually on September 7th, where he called for uh, you know, protests around the country. And there were certainly large numbers of people that turned out to support Bolsonaro. So this is where it then puts the opposition, left-wing forces, social movements, you know, into a discussion among what is the best way to, uh, what, are, what are the avenues available to us uh, in order to confront Bolsonaro? Is it through the courts, where already Bolsonaro is trying to pressure the courts to drop a lot of those cases against them, uh, not just against him, but against his son, who's also a politician? Is it through Parliament in the impeachment road? Is it waiting until the next elections? Many don't want to wait that long. The next elections are due towards the end of next year, uh, 2022. You know, or, or are there other avenues? And these are all part of the discussions that are, that are you know, almost daily occurring you know, in Brazilian society, in the media, and particularly in light in the lead-up to and, and subsequent to the September 7 protests. Does he threaten judges? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, Bolsonaro always plays the kind of uh, two steps forward, one step back kind of uh, strategy. So he, he will outright threaten judges and then the next day take a step back and say, oh, well, yeah, I didn't mean that or, yeah, I was taken out of context. But, of course, what he's, what he's done is he's, he's attempted to test the water and demonstrated that he's not afraid to take certain measures if, if, the, if push comes to shove. And that's a little bit of what we saw with the September 11 protests. On the one hand was almost being billed as the equivalent of the, the January 6th sort of storming of Capitol Hill in, in the US that moment, but, but, but much more serious than even what occurred, occurred there. And hence why I've even talked of coups or, you know, who knew what was going to happen on that day. Now, that, that didn't quite happen, but, the, but what did happen were very large demonstrations and very fiery discourses and, and things like that. But then the next day, Bolsonaro sort of, sort of takes a little step back and he says, oh, well, look, of course, I'm going to allow the, the courts to do their due process. I'm not going to, going to interfere. But he, he's only said that the day after having already unleashed onto the streets, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, demonstrating that this is what uh, any judicial system, this is what any opposition party uh, will have to deal with if, if they try to remove Bolsonaro from power. So that, that's what we see now playing out is really that testing of the waters because everyone kind of knows that some flashpoint, some, some crunch time is coming. I'm just wondering whether the demise of Trump has made any difference to his popularity in Brazil. I'm not sure. I, I haven't read anything that would indicate one way or the other. I, I, I think what it certainly would have done, there would have been a shift in US policy away from open support to Bolsonaro to what I imagine being now a scenario of dialogue with the traditional opposition party. So an attempt, a, a wanting of Brazil to return to what it was, not to the PT, of course, because the US were never friends with the PT either, but what they would like to see for the next elections, I, I imagine their preferred scenario is either a very marginalised, if not totally excluded, Bolsonaro, the rest of the opposition united to be able to hear enough of a vote to defeat any possible PT election, and then position that as therefore finally a, a return to the normal Brazil, you know, that, that is neither ruled by the Workers' Party nor, nor by Bolsonaro. That, that would certainly be in the minds of the US government and their preferred outcome in the current situation. And that would, have, that would have had influence, no doubt, as well amongst the opposition parties and their decision to break with Bolsonaro uh, rather than continue to tolerate him as, 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 as a kind of lesser evil to the Workers' Party. Well, as you said, now entering into the situation is Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. He is running for sure or he hasn't quite made up his mind yet? He has said that he intends to run. Uh, I'm not sure that he has been officially pre-selected as the Workers' Party candidate. Uh, I think, you know, that still, you know, sort of hasn't been officially announced. But, you know, all the, all the polls have him as the PT candidate. I think everyone is expecting that to happen. I think it would be an extreme surprise uh, if he wasn't the candidate, both because, as I said, he's expressed interest in it and, and the polls indicate that yeah, he's certainly uh, probably the, 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 the best chance for the PT of, of winning the elections. Is he bitter? About spending time in jail, I mean, certainly he's you know expressed his anger at the, the way the sort of judicial system was was used against him. But he also understands, and I think the PT understands that they have also lessons to learn through everything that's occurred in in the last you know sort of well not just the last four years, but longer you know to to explain why it was that the PT went from yeah you know, a party that had majority support 
you know, was, at least was able to win uh, not just elections, but had an active, mobilised base that could be on the streets to one where by the end, towards, you know, the second Dilma term in, in government, started to see protests against its government from the left and from its right that was unable to maintain the alliances it had built in Parliament to stop the impeachment from occurring. It's also a, a time for reflection as well and reconsidering, well, what if the PT is to come back to power, uh, how is it going to win back a lot of that support that it, that it sort of lost over time, whether that be from some of the social movements or whether it be from broader society, uh, and also have to deal with you know, a country that, irrespective of what happens in the elections and with Bolsonaro, as I said, the recent days have shown that there's a 10%, 15%, maybe 20% that are you know, virulently anti-Workers' Party, uh, virulently anti-Lula, and I don't think they're, they're just going to go away. That's something that any uh, election campaign and then potential Workers' Party government you know, post-2022 will have to deal with. But, of course, a lot can happen between now and, and 2022. As I said, it openly discussed in the media about could coups, counter-coups, uh, suspensions of democracy, all, all these things are certainly, uh, if not the most likely scenarios, certainly uh, possibilities in, in today's Bolsonaro, in Bolsonaro's Brazil. How strong are the social movements at this time? They're still in a process of rebuilding. I think they were dealt some important blows, you know, were weakened under the Workers' Party government because they were unsure of how to deal with a government that was kind of their government, but but also not their government, you know, so it's a PT had had close relationships with the social movements for so long. Finally, the PT had won, but yet, you know, many felt that the PT wasn't governing the way they, they hoped that the PT would. As a result of that, they essentially lost the streets and we saw right-wing mobilisations outnumbering them in the last months of the Dilma government that preceded the, the, the moves to then impeach her and remove her from government. You know, we had an interim government with uh, Michelle Temer where, you know, the social movements tried to mobilise to, to, you know, basically against the unconstitutional government, an undemocratic government, uh, but, you know, weren't able to have much of an impact. And then they've had to deal with Bolsonaro, COVID, uh, and, and so they still need a process of figuring out, well, and, and how do they also uh, align themselves in this sort of constellation of forces uh, emerging in Brazil? Uh, do they uh, take an approach of... And, and anyone but Bolsonaro front. So, uh, you know, do, do, is, is what is required today, everything from the social movements all the way through to the old traditional parties in order to build as big a possible block to stop Bolsonaro? Or, or are the traditional parties people where they can't be trusted anyway? They were the ones that helped Bolsonaro get into power in the first place. What will they do with the PT? Will they support the PT candidate, obviously depending on who that is? Uh, or will they run their own candidate uh, as they had done previously? So there's a lot of questions, debates going up, and the you know, more I'd say a process of, of rebuilding or a, a, an ongoing process of rebuilding, trying to recover from from these years, as I said, from the particularly the second Dilma term, uh, where there was a lot of expectations with her election campaign, where she promised a lot of progressive reforms, very quickly bin those proposed reforms, and within months had been deposed by right-wing protests, by impeachment in, by right-wing parties had an, an undemocratic government installed and then had Bolsonaro uh, in power. Well, as you said, it's 13 months before the next election. I'd imagine that there'd be a fair few people holding their breath, wondering what Bolsonaro might come up with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one thing Bolsonaro has made clear that he's not going to go away uh, certainly easily. And he certainly has, if not you know, outright said, you know, intimated that you know, he won't be giving up 
on power, whether, you know, in his mind that's because he believes he'll win the elections or if he can't win them or sees that he can't win them, that he'll stop the elections from going ahead. Uh, all these things, you know, Bolsonaro has, has put on the table uh, explicitly or, or implicitly. So it does mean that, you know, there's dangerous period coming in. As I said, whether, whether that be because Bolsonaro himself carries out some kind of, you know, constitutional coup, some, uh, some kind of action to suspend the elections, or whether it's because the military step in because they feel Bolsonaro is too much of a threat, but also are not, you know, no friends of the other democratic forces in the country and impose their own rule. Yeah, they, these things are, uh, again, things that are openly talk, being talked about uh, in, in Brazilian society. And I think either of those two uh, would be extremely dangerous for Brazilian society. Then we have the prospects of impeachment, what would occur if that was to happen, and the prospects of if we make it all the way to 2022, you know, who would be the candidates at those elections and what sort of election campaign would that be? And one would imagine particularly in light of what we saw with the previous elections and what we've seen in the, the subsequent years of the Bolsonaro government, that you know, if Bolsonaro was to campaign, it would almost certainly be a campaign with, as a bare minimum, uh, low-level you know, intensity of violence occurring in those campaigns because we, we, we saw Bolsonaro supporters carrying out violent actions and, uh, against you know, LGBTI, members of the LGBTI community, you know, uh, against activists, uh, and, and that would undoubtedly be even higher levels of violence than compared to the to the previous election so all of those things are on the card so it's very dangerous perhaps uh, potentially dangerous times moving forward in, in brazil and many thanks to fred fuentes you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au